All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Harris. Hello. Hello, Andrew. Hello, everybody. Hello. Happy New Year to you, happy sir. Happy New Year. Did it's you, cold. It is cold. It feels like winter. Yeah, finally. Um, it's great. Making any New Year's resolutions? Um, yeah, I mean, think just generally to, you know, make more money and, and be better looking. I, I, I don't know. One of those two you might do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Good call. What about you? Uh, I, honestly, I just hope 2021 is a little better than 2020. Which yeah. The bar is really low this Really year. low. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got to go up from here, right? I, okay. So we're, we're actually going to talk about DWIs. So have you seen the meme that says, you think 2020 was bad? Wait till it turns 21, it can drink. I have not seen that, but that's hilarious. Yeah, that's good times. Yeah, All right, so speaking good. of our topic of the day. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking again about DWIs, right, but, but with a twist, right? A twist, right? Yeah, um, what's that? Uh, well, first of all, uh, we're not going to talk about DWIs. We're going Thankfully. To, to actually let someone else talk about them. Uh, this is someone who, if you practice law in North Texas in the DFW area, you've probably seen this attorney in court, you probably uh, actually attended a CLE where she has spoken. Uh, yeah. We are talking about the uh, the the attorney Mimi Coffee, the great uh, Mimi Coffee. She has uh, graciously agreed to talk to us, but about DWIs that are non-alcohol related. What I know, I didn't know that was possible. Well, apparently I did, it actually, is. But... Uh, apparently it is. We're going to find out more from from Mimi. Uh, so Mimi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew and Andrew. I'm honored to be here. You guys are so sweet. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us, Mimi. We really appreciate it. All right. So, so we'll start with something simple. Introduce yourself. Tell us uh, a little bit about how you got, in, got into uh, the law. Sure. So I've always wanted to help people. And after I got licensed, I started working for, shortly after I got licensed, I started working for Bailey and Galleon which is here in the Metroplex. They're like the neighborhood firm that does everything from personal injury to family law to criminal. And I was in charge of, um, or I did a lot of the misdemeanors for Bailey and Galleon out of the Tarrant County side. And that was mainly DWIs. And so I found that uh, in order to really adequately defend a DWI, you had to dig real deep down into you know, the SFST, police, I'm going to call it police science because it's not real science, but um, the police science and then the forensics aspect of it. And I just started throwing seminars and I've really enjoyed it ever since. So you said police science, is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that like an air quote? That's really <laughs> bad, yeah. Yeah. bad terms to use. Yeah. <laughs> but the public needs to know about that because... Oh, for sure. NHTSA, the National oh, Highway, sure. yeah, I mean, NHTSA, the federal government throws, you know, forces that the standardized field sobriety test on people, the horizontal gaze and stagnus test on people, unwitting members of our public uh, who are victims of this police science, and there's really a lack of scientific foundation behind them, and it, it's really, really scary when you have the force of the federal government behind tools that are used to convict people that lack scientific merit. That's a real problem. Yeah, we often, uh, Andrew Harith often says that this is an opinion case. It's not a uh, actual legal uh, standard. It's not a scientific standard. It's an opinion standard on if someone's intoxicated, especially if there's not 
uh, a blood draw. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. A- Andrew's Andrew is totally right, except for the fact that that's not the way the prosecutors sell it, and that's not the way, unfortunately, that many judges are educated or police officers, for that matter, right? So they right. open up a a SFST manual, and it has statistics and. Like, for example, they tried to promulgate the horizontal gaze nystagmus test on science, right? That's not an opinion, it's a science. But if you go into the field of scientific, you know, peer-reviewed research, you'll find that, you know, there's no science to back that up. Um, I mean, there are 47 muscles in the eyes. There are 38 causes for your eyeballs to have horizontal gaze nystagmus. And when you dig deep and you find out, hey, you know, basically you've got an optometrist promulgating this, that's their go-to eye scientist for this. I mean, it lacks merit. And there's some, there's some really good articles out there in the scientific literature, particularly when you talk about the opinion, uh, the opinion cases, the walk and turn, the one leg stand. Clemson University did a study, and it was a real scientific peer-review study where they had controls, they had people that had not consumed alcohol, and it's crazy just in terms of the lack of science, how normal people can fail those opinion field sobriety tests, and yet they're promulgated to the police with statistics, and they, judges are taught through Texas DPS seminars and whatnot, you know how there's science behind it, and, and there's not, and that's really really scary it's i mean it's the lie that is called dui right yeah right yeah it's exactly right um so uh so you became what we're what we're referring to as the go-to dwi person by starting in a really big firm that hired you early to basically handle some misdemeanors and dwis but then you ended up with your own office and now a staff and other attorneys working for you and primarily, do you do anything besides DWIs now? Well, I mean, I primarily, you know, throughout 25 years, you'll get a DWI client that also has, you know, a possession case or whatnot, or, or you know, assault cases. I tell everybody that now in terms of there's a big difference between, um, you know, big felonies and let's say, for example, a criminal trespass case in terms of the pressure, in terms of what's at stake and whatnot. But I mean, I've, I've done a lot of different types of criminal defense cases, but that's mainly, that's not what people mainly hire me for. I mean, they yeah. hire me for DWI. Right, right. No, and, and for the right. average person, uh, you know, DWI is probably the most concerning thing that's going to happen to them in their life. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, right. to have somebody who like knows the details like that. I mean, that, that is money well spent. That's for sure. So, uh, Mimi, let's, let's, uh, assume now you have a potential new client that calls you says, Hey, Mimi, I was arrested for DWI, but I didn't have anything to drink. I don't understand. I mean, I had been smoking. How can I be arrested for DWI if I was yeah. smoking weed? Yeah. So, um, very, very interesting. When you ask me the que- that question, the first thing that jumps out at me is a lot of people don't know that for purposes of immigration, right? Like people get a DWI, whether it's a DWI drugs, DWI marijuana, DWI alcohol, but uh, immigration looks at a DWI non-alcohol completely different. And I'm not in 
immigration specialist, but it is my understanding that you are automatically deported if it's a DWI, albeit a first-time DWI, misdemeanor DWI, if it's non-alcohol, right? So, um, is that because, is that because it's viewed as a drug offense, I guess? You know, I can't answer that. I, right. I, I don't know. Fair. I just know Fair. that Fair. it's totally different. Yeah. Um, yeah in terms that. of when people... Seems yeah, it's scary. It's really, really scary. Yeah. Uh, in terms of people coming in for uh, drugs, now, holy holy camoly. So when we talk about the lack of science, right, it, it's pretty easy to pinpoint the, the lack of science for the walk and turn one leg stand in HGN. Um, when you look at Clemson study and other studies out there, you say, holy cow, uh, why do they continue with this? But when you start talking about DWI drugs, right, the DRE program, that's, whoa, uh, that's even worse. I mean, it's hard for that to even be possible, to lower the lack of scientific foundation even further, but that's the case. And fortunately, there are more opinions throughout the country that basically throw out DRE. Um, I think it's really important for us as practitioners to know that we should never just opt to buy into, you know, their so-called police pseudoscience. We shouldn't call police officers who may not have any scientific background, not to mention there's no platform of science for the DRE program, but we can't call them DRE experts because they're right. not. When you look at the actual results of those studies, and see how they really have difficulty trying to pinpoint what classification of drug it is. I mean, it's, it's scary. And if you go to the top scientists, right, the top toxicologists in the United States, you go to the Borkenstein Drug School, which I went to once. Now they don't let defense lawyers show. But um, they are fascinated. The real scientists are fascinated with the question of at what point does a certain type of compound impair you and i was shocked when i went because it was um their attitude was very different from the borkenstein alcohol alcohol course that i went to but those experts basically said hey look here's the deal you just can't get a per se number because chemical compounds medications affect people differently in terms of tolerance now I've, you know you the three of us know that People have various um, tolerances for alcohol as well. But the scientific community in terms of um, law enforcement have been more forthcoming with, with saying, hey, look, you know, we really just can't put numbers on things. And then marijuana falls into DRE, but marijuana is a whole classification in terms of uh, problems itself, you know, starting with that ridiculous, one of the the symptoms that they look for is, do you have green tongue? I mean, that's, that, that is ridiculous. And, yeah. and, uh, there's, and they've, now they've, they've, you know, you can, they've come around to acknowledging that that's kind of ridiculous, but that just goes to show how lacking the whole DRE program is. And, um, also for, don't eat Jolly Ranchers or, yeah, or any kind or, of lollipop. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Mimi, for our listeners who may not know, and for Andrew's benefit, what is DRE? That is the drug recognition, they call it, you know, drug recognition expert. 
program, the drug recognition evaluation program. And um, it's very interesting because I don't know if you guys tuned in, but I did a free um, Tarrant County criminal defense lawyer seminar, either in October or November about basically from, from start till present, you know, how they even develop the program, these police officers in Los Angeles um, and how it got to where we are today. And it's, it's really scary. Yeah. That was like uh, two detectives back in the seventies, right? Out in LA. You know, I'd have to pull that out, but I believe that you're correct. I believe it was like the two 70s. cops who were like, yeah, and they, these potheads, they got green tongues. You know, it's like, okay, write that down. Yeah. We'll add that in. <laughs> Makes no sense. Well, you know, it's not like, it, it, you know, people driving on drugs is not something that's all of a sudden new, right? It's just that I think that scientists with integrity for years and years and years have refused to say, okay, we're going to just put out this one size fits all program out there and arrest and convict people. Um, so it's interesting to see how everything developed quickly after uh, the LA cops came up with their own little program in LA. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. if there, if there's a blood draw, somebody gets stopped for a DWI, uh, and there's a blood draw and there's THC in their system, right? Where's the possible defense? Do you, right. what, what all do you take into consideration as you look at that as a, as a practitioner? Yes. Well, the first thing that I look at right now is, okay, um, well, I mean, you do look at the number, right? Um, and I, <clears throat> I think that Dr. Fran Jingo, G-E-N-G-O, he is a professor of pharmacy uh, in Buffalo, New York. He is, in my opinion, the country's best scientific expert for tell me, you know, what would be dosages that you would say, okay, a person would have to be impaired at that amount. I think that, you know, you go to your go-to experts when it becomes really questionable. But for me, if I see anything that is below 15, um, and we know that Colorado makes it illegal to, to have five nanograms, but if I see anything below 15, I think about the study that uh, it's either Iowa State or University of Iowa anyway, I think of the study that they came out with that they said that, that there's just no way. You can't be mentally impaired at below 15. And they dose people up and then they put them in cars and they had them go through driving exercises. And so I'm, I'm very concerned with anything that is 15 or below. And then, of course, if you're talking about, because prosecutors are not on the same bandwagon. I mean, you know, they... They, uh, a lot of them are concerned at what, five and up. And so then I start considering the testing aspect. They have to get that toxicology report in. And right now, currently, um, it's, a, it's a big, big problem. And Texas DPS was supposed to have solved it before the pandemic. I believe, oh, I could be wrong on this, but I believe... Oh, well, don't get me quoted on dates, but uh, the problem with, with getting the toxicology reports in was that you can't, you can't, for, in terms of good science, you can't say, okay, I believe that this person had three active uh, nanograms of THC in their system, 
unless you know that the machine that you tested it on, the sample, um, is fit for purpose. And in order to do that, you have to have a validation study. And that's, that's very complicated. And to do it right, um, it's, it's, you know, you've got to have a, a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of documentation that goes with that. And that's been the problem. My understanding is the problem has been that they just, now that hemp is legal, they are, it, it's going to cost a lot of money for them to get a proper validation study that they can be confident that, you know, they can separate hemp from marijuana. And also, there's some really big issues about creating positive THC reports uh, or adding um, extra THC to a toxicology amount that didn't exist before just through the testing process. That's really, really scary. And we have one lab that uh, right now, I believe that the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which I don't have a whole lot of faith in, um, and that's just based on uh, I'm glad it exists, but I think that there needs to be, they need to hold labs and analysts more accountable just in terms of if you see what they've been reviewing and what their results yeah. are. But I believe that the local Armstrong Labs is under current review with the Texas Forensic Science Commission. And I do know for a fact that they are using gas chromatography uh, and there's some issues with that. Wow. So, and the big issues are through their testing process, are they actually, forget the whole question of validation, which is fundamental, but are they actually um, contributing to, you know, either elevated or false THC reports? That's, it's really scary. And a lot of that has to do with the, the way that you prepare a sample. Um, you got to have proper validation and you have to make sure as Dr. Shub, who is the expert at UTA said, I'll, I'll read you guys something. He said, uh, let's see, you've got to, another approach would be to derivatize the cannabinoids before GC analysis, as this will keep the acids intact and be able to determine separated from the non-acid cannabinoids. So it's, it's really scary. He, he says the labs that use GC need to show during method validation the efficient and quantitative conversion of cannabinoid acids there are more than just dhca into non-acid forms um the, the it, it's just really scary how you so can actually the labs that use the gc yeah. tests are not currently able to to accomplish that or it's just a whole nother step that they're not taking or yeah so when all basically you know it's it's um i don't see a lot of dwi marijuana cases but uh, we, we're seeing more testing and more controversy just in terms yeah. of um the possession cases because yeah. of the testing because most labs are saying i'm out you know i had yeah. i mean texas dps yeah. if they can't do it you know, it makes you wonder about a little uh, Arlington startup. But Dr. Shug said that the, the main concern is if you're going to be testing and you're really focusing on amounts, that you should be using 
GC, uh, or pardon me, you should be using the liquid chromatography, not the uh. gas chromatography. And the problem with the gas chromatography is you can actually, through that, uh, it's very important to derivatize the sample first, and you have to make sure that you're testing it correctly so that you don't actually, through the testing process, add to the THC amount. To use his words, let's see. Um, yeah, he... The most reliable way to determine THC would be to, would be to determine this separately using liquid chromatography rather than relying on a part of the analysis to convert THCA into THC. Uh, let's see, it's a bad idea to use GCFID instead of GCMS as the board cannot tell you if some other substance is contributing to a total response that one might try to attribute solely to being THC. And so in that testing method, it, it is possible to actually elevate or cause false results, and that's really scary. And you know, we know that even for DWI blood testing, when you're using gas chromatography flame ionization, that you hope that what you are looking for is ethanol. But that's why you should always, and a lot of labs don't actually give you numeric values for, um, for both reports, right? Right. So you hope that, that's why you hope that, it's kind of, the best example that I can give is when you are looking at a gas chromatogram and you know that one peak is your standard and one peak is supposedly ethanol. Right, and you see all these little peaks, right. and the question is, when you're just looking at a two-dimensional chromatogram, if you have an old garden hose that you haven't used in 10 years, I mean, who knows what's been accumulating up in that garden hose, like sand, uh, silt, pebbles, rocks. So the moment that you blast the water in that garden hose, things are going to start shooting out, right? Maybe the, maybe the silt shoots out at a foot, maybe the, um, or, you know, maybe pebbles would be, you know, within a couple of inches or however, however it's going to vary. That's scary. So you have to, that, the same thing happens with GCFID. You have to know, you have to verify, I mean, as much as you can. And you really can't do that um, unless you use GCMS. But when you're talking about parts per billion of nanograms, you really have to use GCMS if you're not going to use liquid chromatography. And that's really, really scary that we've got people out there who are looking at prison and jail on reports from a lab that's using gas chromatography flame ionization detector method. It's just not appropriate. And Dr. Shug emphasizes that. So, so you've thrown a lot out. I mean, it sounds like, yes, if you have, I mean, not, not just for a, a DWI with THC, but literally like whenever you have a lab involved that's uh, performing some of these tests or you have a GC uh, anal uh, analysis, yes, there is possible defenses. You just got to get down into the weeds and start researching and reading and make sure you, you understand all of, uh, all of these protocols. 
Yeah, and the scary thing is that, you know, we get a lab report, right? So the prosecutor will give us a one-page lab report, and by law, on a ethanol blood test case, they have to give a margin of uncertainty. Well, and they really ought to do that with, with drugs, and they ought to do that with breath testing, too. Um, but until you order the hundreds and hundreds of pages of records, you don't know the whole story. So you might find out that the lab has tested your client's sample three times over the course of four months, and it makes you scratch your head and wonder why. And then you, you might also see that they're reporting the highest result out of six reported results instead of the lowest result. So especially when you're looking at elevated punishment at a 0.15, it can make a huge difference getting all of those pages of discovery. And it's, it's crazy what you'll find. I have found blood tests where they reported a remediated seal, which means that the seal uh, was broken. Um, I, I have been able to go to prosecutors and say, hey, look, I know you're looking at this one-page report, but let me show you all of the tests. And let me show you how, if we're going to give the citizen the benefit of the doubt, like good science would require that you do, we should go with this lowest score. You'll find it's pretty shocking. You'll find when you're ordering, because there's a, an expert who used to be a state expert, Dr. Matthew Cheney, young, really with it guy, analytical chemistry expert, uh, and he ended up leaving the state, and you could ask him more questions, but I believe that uh, he had some ethical concerns. But he told me, don't get me quoted exactly on the numbers, but it's something like a fourth of a drop more pipetted can increase a person's ethanol result by 0.07, something crazy. Whoa. And so when you get the pipette records and the diluter records and you see, I've gotten records where it shows that the, the pipette is so critical, both pipette and the diluter, the diluter for, for the standard, the pipette for your client. I've seen where their checks failed. Um, and that's crazy. And I think it's very effective in trial work. Uh, sometimes a prosecutor may not understand or, you know, they'll get that bland answer of, oh, well, that wouldn't affect the result, blah, 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 blah. But, yeah, it does matter. And, and juries pay attention to that kind of stuff when measurements are so minute. So I think that we, you know, the, what's really been making me upset here lately is um, I've been getting, I recently got pages, breath test records, where they went back and they they gave me records from like a year ago that they recently discovered oh well uh we had a problem i think it was a problem with the solution I'm like and now you tell me like a year later and how's yeah. you give this to me a client where it's not relevant but oh now you want to give me these records uh in the past i mean so i i think it's always very very important to get the discovery and you know I'm happy to share my discovery template on blood and breath with any lawyer that asks. I've gone through a lot of pain, Andrew and Andrew. When I first started asking for comprehensive blood discovery, the city of Fort Worth, they actually fought me. They assigned it to their city attorneys to come and 
fight me in court in terms of not giving me the records. And oh my gosh, that we went round and round on that for months and months. And then I went round and round with NMS. They also did not want to give me comprehensive blood discovery. They actually hired a law firm out of Austin. Uh, and those folks drove up in a hearing to, to try to argue I wasn't entitled to it. And we all know the answer to that. Um, of course, I'm entitled to it. Any citizen accused is entitled to, to um, have an examination of records that are pertinent to, to whether or not that result is accurate. So is that, I mean, you know, Mimi, you're, you're well known for, for crossing these experts called by the state. I mean, is that the secret to an effective cross is, is get the records, prepare your tail off, um, you know, know where these weaknesses are? So great, great question. And I think that, um, like my the, the psychology of it also is really, really different. I think if, if you're talking about when you're going to distinguish between breath and blood. Early on, I learned as a young lawyer, you know, if I went and I really attacked the science, um, I found that sometimes the jurors, you know, they're not, they don't stay with you. Or sometimes it's not, you know, that doesn't make a difference to them. And so I learned with breath testing that it makes a whole lot more sense to use the state's expert to just admit to things, of course, that they can't deny. Like, um, okay, so if we have a temperature uh, when a person takes a breath test of a sample that is more, how much more would this affect the result? And so when you get, you know, what, what exactly is an air blank? How much alcohol can be in an air blank and the machine still reports zero? So I think that I learned pretty early on that if I got the state's expert to start admitting to um, limitations and margins of the machine, it was much more effective than having a defense expert. So <clears throat> I like to do that. And then, of course, sometimes you need a defense expert. And science is science, right? So it doesn't matter who you work for, um, the state or citizen accused, you've got to admit to scientific principles. When it comes to blood testing, what I think is really, really scary is, you know, at least with a breath test machine, you understand the limitations of that infrared device. You understand from the get-go what, what the problems are. But with blood testing, I, I am so much more concerned about bad things happening with blood testing because I went to a GC course for scientists out of Axion Labs in Chicago. And when I was learning how to do it myself, one of the things that stuck with me was they said, you know, you've always got to have, never, ever, ever, you know, do a, a GC task without having another analyst watch your every move. I mean, it's so important because it's so easy to make mistakes. And you've got these government labs, right, running like thousands and thousands of blood tests at once. And sometimes when you get the discovery documentation, you see that they've got their batches upside down. So then they'll just like write a big arrow. I mean, that's some pretty sloppy work. There's so much that can happen behind the scenes that it's really hard to discover. And, you know, we all know about what happened 
with the Salina police officer, right? The Texas DPS analyst. Um, well, in Salina, the police department that's in Collin County, they have a policy that if a police officer kills somebody on duty, that they have to take a blood test. Well, this police officer apparently killed somebody on duty. Something happened. I don't know. So following protocol, the police officer took a blood test and sent it to Texas DPS Garland Labs. And everybody that day that, that dealt with that police officer and whatever happened knew that police officer was not intoxicated. But when the result came back, the result said, I forgot what it was, but it was something like, I don't know, 1.4 or something, well over 0.08. Um, people were shocked. Whoa. And when I believe it was the police chief that called the lab and talked to the analyst and said, something is wrong. Well, then the analyst says, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I got the results mixed up. And, you know, even with that, there's been all kinds of controversy in terms of how that analyst has responded to what happened on the witness stand. And Texas DPS eventually moved that analyst, as I understand it to Austin. Now, that's the kind of treatment a police officer gets. But what kind of treatment does a citizen get when, you know, the test has been run improperly and let's say that they put it all into the gas chromatograph but they're one vial off, results can be different. That's another scary thing. So with the blood testing, they really good science says you're going to you're going to have a result, test a hypothesis and test it again. Well, Texas DPS is, I assume it's because they're so busy that whenever they test an individual, they test them back to back in the same batch. Well, if there's so many they test at one time, if they're off, like what happened to that officer in Salina, how is anybody going to know when it's in one batch? You should test the person two times in two well, test them once in two different batches and change up the order so that when you compare the batches, you say, wow, something's not fitting. I have a result that's off. But um, this, I mean, that's standard practice. From what I see from Texas DPS all across the state, I guess they're just so busy. They just test everybody in one batch. It's really hard to understand everything that's going on when so much of it is just unknown, right? There's no videotapes of the procedures. And I think a lot of times they're just working uh, solo in terms of testing and they're stopping their testing in the middle of the testing and having to go testify and whatnot. It's just scary, not to mention the fermentation issues that can happen uh, from improper storage. And the fact that that's a real big issue that state scientists still want to try to deny but it's a it's it's serious i mean yeah. right right those samples yeah. can't harm it yeah there there's a there i think at the end of the day the the issue with the testing is that we're dealing with we're dealing with scientific outcomes or data but it's produced by humans and humans yep automatically can make mistakes i know that because i've made mistakes today we know Andy's made some mistakes today. Uh, just one. Just actually. one? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but my grandfather, his dad uh, owned a bakery. This was back in the 30s and 40s in New Jersey. And when he'd hire a new baker, he would ask them, have you ever burned a batch of cookies? And if they said no, he knew either they were lying or they hadn't cooked a lot of cookies yet. Yeah. Right? That's smart. 
right? And, and so yeah. I think it's a question that literally we can ask every analyst. Have you ever messed up a batch? And if they say no, you don't have to say anything to them. You just literally argue to the jury. Either they're lying because everyone makes mistakes or they haven't done this long enough to be an expert. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, that's, it, a, that's a great approach. You know, um, keep, Love keep, it, that. keep it simple for the, for, for the people like me. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, maybe you've given us like a ton of information. Uh, it has been data heavy. Uh, so for our listeners that, that are, that are, um, uh, just interesting, just kind of who you are as a person. We always like asking a few of fun questions of our guests. Uh, so Andrew, you want to ask her the first couple of them? Yeah. And, um, maybe real quick for those, um, you know, attorneys who maybe are, are wanting to get, uh, to be better warriors on these cases. Do you, do you have, or can you recommend any resources for them, uh, to start maybe someplace to start, uh, reading more about yeah. this or, or whatever? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, and I'm pretty passionate about that. That's um, one thing that I do a lot is, you know, I'm, I'm a region of the National College of DUI Defense and have been, I think about nine years. And I spend a lot of volunteer time that's not paid going to different seminars across the country and, you know, just trying to educate. I would recommend that you join the National College of DUI Defense um, because we have a virtual forensic library just full of articles. Uh, we have a, a great listserv where you can go on and we have actual, like Dr. Frangingo is, I believe he's on there. I know that Dr. Stefan Rose, who's also a fabulous, fabulous expert on drugs and blood, he frequently contributes to the listserv and we, we give free seminars to public defenders across the country because we know that they're struggling they don't have a lot of resources and it, there's just a, a wealth of resources within the national college and, and people that are happy to help fantastic we'll put that Highly in the show notes for everybody and I'll, I'll try to link to uh to the or i will link to the to the national college uh dui defense website for that oh great so, so Mimi, tell us, uh, what is your, you know, favorite band or musical artist? <laughs> well, I'm not really a music, I love music, right? But like, I, I mean, I'm not really like a music person that <clears throat> I never took a band class, uh, but, uh, I'm an eighties chick. So, I, okay, please, please don't be disappointed. Um, but for all you Madonna lovers out there, I love Madonna, still do. Wonderful. <laughs> Don't laugh. I love Barry Manilow. I love the Bee Gees. There you go. <laughs> hey, Madonna is is has been relevant now for uh, my whole lifetime, basically, since I was. I, I remember, I guess, the first time hearing Madonna, I was in about seventh grade, and um, you still wear your Madonna shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says like a virgin. Um, <laughs> so what's a favorite book of yours or one you'd recommend people to read? You know, some people like to say, this is my favorite book of all time. Other people are like, Hey, this is a book I've read recently and this is on my mind. Yeah. So I typically, I, I have a founding father reading list. I'm typically reading a founding father book every month. I think it helps you argue the law better. I think that when, jurors understand that you really understand not just the law, but the spirit of the law and how it came about. I think that's fascinating. I mean, you throw George Washington or Thomas Jefferson into a board dire and suddenly bored people are perking up. 
Um, but in that quest, I came across a book. I don't like to, uh, I don't like to read a biography twice, um, but this one was so good that I read it twice. It's called The Lunar Men. And that book is about, it's across the pond. It was the, the geniuses of Great Britain, like Erasmus uh, Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather. They would all get together when it was a full moon so that they could travel easy. And, and chemistry was, even for the politicians, was a big point of interest. And I, I found that fascinating to see how chemistry and, you know, they were exploring electricity. And I, I found it fascinating how all of these extremely smart, successful men in their different professions all shared that love of, you know, how do things work from a chemistry perspective. So I highly recommend the book, The Lunar Men. That's awesome. We'll, we'll include that link into, uh, in our show notes also. I've never heard of it. I'm, I'm definitely going to be adding that to my, to my Amazon list now. Uh, oh, what is the best piece of advice, either personal or professional that, that you've been given or one that you like to, uh, to hand out to, uh, to people? Well, you know what? Um, I think we have a lot of lawyers listening, so I want to give a shout out. It's business, uh, but I'll give a shout out to Judge. When I read that question, um, I'll give a shout out to Judge Cheryl Hardy. So when I was a new lawyer, Dallas-Fort Worth is a huge place. And I told Judge Hardy, hey, I'm going to open up my own practice. And she said, Mimi, she said, the best advice I can give to you is make sure you put your office on airport freeway. So I just love Judge Hardy. I was like, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm from White Settlement, right? Um, live, I now live in Fort Worth and in, uh, still in White Settlement and in Dallas. But I took her advice and I, I have an office on the airport freeway. And before I bought my office, I, had, I rented an office on the airport freeway. And I have found throughout the years that Dallas-Fort Worth is so huge. Tarrant County um, is so huge. But when people see airport freeway, uh, it's pretty easy to get to. <laughs> Whether you're from Arlington 360 or Hershey Hills Bedford and that's just real convenient or driving up from Fort Worth. And uh, I think that, you know, it's really important to be accessible to people and make it easy for people to get to you. And now we're starting to go to virtual world and valuations virtual on Zoom and whatnot. But I'm really grateful for that. And um, that, that was great advice that was gratuitously given to me by Judge Hardy. I love it. And, and Judge Hardy also gave me some, some pretty good advice when I was just starting out. I just moved to, uh, to Fort Worth. And uh, yeah, she's, she's, a, she's a very special, special judge for sure. She is. Okay, so let's assume that somebody uh, needs your help either to hire you as an attorney or they, they've, they realize they've got questions that are over Andrew's in my heads and they need to contact you to get some of your expertise. How can people find you? Yeah. So I've had the same phone number for over 25 years. I think that my cell phone is even on Facebook, right? Um, my office, uh, people call my office um, and you ask for my cell phone number. Everybody, all my clients get my cell phone number. I like it um, because uh, particularly because if it's a night hour or a weekend hour and someone's worried about something, I want to make sure that they don't, they worry as little as possible that they have a direct way to get a hold of me. So my, on my website, my office phone numbers are there. Uh, my cell phone is readily available and uh, you know, email, text and all of that. 
All right. Cool. Um, and we'll make sure we put your website on in the show notes so they can find you. Uh, is there any, any closing thoughts, uh, Mr. Harris? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And I, I think I? Mimi was just about to have one, but that's your website is MimiCoffee.com. M-I-M-I-C-O-F-F-E-I.com. Is that right? Yes. I just wanted to throw a shout out to you guys. I enjoy listening to you guys. I admire your work. I admire your tenacity. Um, you, y'all are doing a fantastic, fabulous job. I've been practicing for 25 years and, you know, it gives me a lot of, uh, peace and comfort and solace seeing guys like you, uh, do the work that you are, are doing at, you know, it, it, it's just, thank you for what you guys do. You're doing a great job. Oh, thanks. Well, Mimi. thanks. That means a lot coming from you sincerely. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we picked it up as a hobby and. Andrew won't let me put it down. So yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank it's you. Fun. Yeah. Thank you uh, again to our listeners. Happy new year. Welcome to 2021. Uh, we hope that you have a great 2021 and we know, I think we can say with confidence, it will be better than 2020. What do you think, Mr. Harris? For sure. And thank you for, for joining us. Did you already say that? I did. You know, how about in the new year, 2021, each of our listeners goes to our website or leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. That would just be swell. Right. Yeah. Because we learned today, Mr. Harith and I did, that the average podcast gets downloaded 150 times a month. So right now we're just around average and yeah. our egos need to be stoked. So we'd like to be above average. So tell For a friend. Sure. Tell All a right. friend. Y'all be good. We'll see you next time.